With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to Cureleaf, a medical marijuana dispensary. Whether you're a longtime patient or you're just getting acquainted with this incredible plant, Cureleaf of Pennsylvania is honored to guide you along your medical marijuana journey. Visit us soon at our new State College location. This is the Blue White Breakdown, the premier podcast for all things Penn State football. Talk about culture. It's something that should show up in every aspect of your program. It's the Blue White Breakdown, brought to you by Penn Live. Here are your hosts, Bob Flounders and David Jones. It's another edition of the Blue White Breakdown, but not just any edition. <laughs> another special guest. Last week we had Ray Dittinger. This week we have an enormous personality, uh, a man who's been my friend and confidant and and pretty much uh, what would you call him? Almost like my agent in this business for quite a while. He's a good man. And he knows about a lot of stuff, but Bob's going to go crazy this week because he knows a lot about horse racing. <laughs> He's Dick Girardi, formerly of the Philadelphia Daily News, still the uh, color analyst for Penn State basketball, which is an, an entire other realm of full of tradition and pageantry. <laughs> Dick, how are you? Dave, uh, nobody like Dave uh, in the world. A great introduction. And uh, yes, Jonesy has certainly been my confidant. I've tried for years, Bob, to help him, and he just won't listen. <laughs> I know I know some of the stories, but we don't we don't need to get into that. But they're all a good fun. They're all hilarious. Dave's a good sport when it comes to some of the stuff you yes, guys yes. talk about. And I just enjoy Eddie and all inside info, inside baseball. Love it. Plus, you love the horsies. And I do. You adore this man, but you you always keep asking me to ask. I said, well, why don't you take his number and call him yourself? Well, yeah, you, <laughs> you, you talk to him all the time. You ask. You've got the inside path, Dave. It's like asking, you know, John Oliver to translate uh, figure skating information. I don't know what I'm doing. I have no idea. So you could speak the lingo directly to him. It makes no sense. I just think Penn State fans who are listening and watching to the, watching this, um, if they're not familiar with Dick Girardi, um, I, in, all, in all sincerity, I think the, the best college basketball guy that, I, that I've read and also the greatest uh, horse racing writer that I, I've had. The, he's just unbelievable. Another one of those Philadelphia Daily News guys, that staff is just a, a good a good staff might go three or four writers deep, good talented guys. That's the staff was like 12, 15. Everyone, it was like murderer's row. Dick, when, when do you think we met? Do you remember meeting me? When do you think we met? It had, had to be Penn State football, I suppose, right? That would make sense, Dave, or maybe basketball. Tell me when you got to the Patriot News. What year? In 90. I, I started showing up in 90. How about an Atlantic 10 tournament, maybe? Yeah, at the yeah that makes or sense. Something like that. Where I think I, that was where I, made, I think I made my first famous lie of the day, which he often quotes to me. I said, Dave, 
You really don't know that much, do you? <laughs> <laughs> that was that was much later than that. Much much later. But yeah, sometime I would say in the early nineties, and then when Penn State started in the Big Ten for football, that was the first year I started covering the football team. So Dave and I obviously saw each other fairly regularly at that point. And we were we were catching up this morning. I did not realize he. Uh, Covered Dick covered Penn State football for quite a while from '93 to '04. Is that what you said? That is correct. Yeah, some uh, obviously some great years at the beginning, and then some not so great years <laughs> at the end in the 2000s. As usual, everything you touch turns <laughs> to crap. I'm never good. I'm ne- I'm never good at endings. I'm good at stories, but I you know I mess up the endings somehow. Uh, you were mentioning the '94 team because I had forgotten. You were taking road trips and everything with that team, right? Yeah, I, I think I went to a, a lot of the road games. Now, keep in mind, we did not have a Sunday paper, so it wasn't as obviously with the Eagles. It wasn't a huge deal, but it was a deal at our paper. And I specifically remember the first game of the year was at Minnesota. I was not there. It was 56 to 3. And I'm thinking, you know, this, they might be pretty good. I got to yeah. interject a, a quick story because I've got Murray Warmath. Do you know him? Yeah, the, sure. The former Minnesota coach, okay? Yep. Yep. And he's he's beside himself because it's thirty five nothing at halftime, <laughs> and and he's got a bunch of his old codger, codger buddies behind him in in the Metrodome, and he's going, you know, they, they won't call the holding, and one of his buddies <laughs> says, Murray, it's thirty five to nothing, and he said, oh, but still, you know, and they go, go ahead, go ahead. So the second game of the year is at Beaver Stadium. They're playing USC, and this is a true story. They're up 35 to nothing at halftime. Again. So I go up to the press box and call my travel agent and make plane reservations for the Rose Bowl. That's how they were, they were like, just, oh, my God, yeah, how good is this team? And, and it was obvious real early that they were going to be one of the all-time great, certainly offensive teams in the history of college football. Yeah. And you made the road trip to uh, Illinois? Is that what you said? I did. That was the last road game of the regular season at Illinois. Uh, they'd had that bizarre game, remember, the week before against Indiana where they they were crushing them. Then they put, uh, Joe put the subs in. They gave up a couple of late touchdowns, and people that didn't watch the game misunderstood what had happened. 35-29, 35-29, had, had been 35-14. Right, and they'd actually run back a fumble for a touchdown to make it 42, I think, and it got called back. But anyway – People, that's when they, they'd already dropped in the polls to number two after beating Ohio State 63 to 14, <laughs> which made no sense. But yeah, the Illinois game. So, Bob, you'll love this. It's 21 nothing Illinois after the first quarter. So, I, I remember kind of the top of the press box, and Dave, my good buddy, looks at me and he goes, That's it. They're in trouble. They're, you know, and I said, Dave, let me ask you a question. Have you been watching this team all year? They will score enough to win. The question was, were they ever going to stop Illinois? They finally did. And won 35-31 and, of course, had the great drive in the last minute. Brian Milton scored the winning touchdown. But that was, to me, the signature moment because they hadn't been in close games. The only other close game they really had was the Michigan game out at Michigan. And when they needed to show, hey, they could do it under pressure, they did. All right. So who wins, Penn State or Nebraska? They never played. This will be instructive to Bob, I think. I don't even think it would have been close that year. Nebraska's great team was the following year, the 95 team that just obliterated Florida uh, in the national championship game. Nebraska didn't have a very good offense. And Dave, you'll also appreciate this. While I was overlooking the Pacific Ocean in my palatial 
room in Manhattan Beach the day after the Rose Bowl, uh, <laughs> Joe had his press conference. And I remember asking him specifically, because he always said, wait till the end of the season. And I said, is this the best team you've ever had? And he said, look, I can't imagine any team that could beat it. So I went back to the room and called your friend and mine, Tony Sinisi. I said, all right, neutral field, Nebraska, Penn State. What's the line? Penn State minus three. That told me all I needed to know. Penn State would have been favored in the game, even though they finished number two because everybody wanted Tom Osborne to win a national title. Yeah, I think that's pretty pretty much true. And they, they Miami almost beat them the night before. They did, and Miami wasn't very good. They weren't very good at all, and they almost beat them. Yeah, Nebraska's offense was very pedestrian that year. They had a great defense. And of course, the next year, I mean, they were awesome. That was one of the great teams in college football history, the 95 Nebraska team. Uh, I guess we have to get into a little bit of Penn State basketball since we're on a Penn State thread. Yes, we can do that. Now, I remember you getting, and you know, you missed really all the glory years. And ever since, I mean, it's been a hard road for Dick Girardi. It's been a hard road. As James Johnson used to say, uh, <laughs> Dick, it's hard. It's hard. <laughs> My buddy James Johnson, who left Penn State to go to be an assistant coach at George Mason, and his first year ends up in the Final Four. Think about it. Final <laughs> Four, no problem. No problem. The, those first few years, you know, you got in at the very wrong time. You, what was it, 02, 03 season, right? Yeah, it was 0405. My first year was Ed's second year. Ed DeCellis' second year as the head coach. And the first three games were in Milwaukee. Uh in in where the it's not where the Bucks play, it's where the Bucks used to play. And the third game, they lost to South Carolina State. I think it was like <laughs> 60 to 45. And I looked at my new best friend, Steve Jones. And I said, Steve, <laughs> what's, what's going on here? And that's where I actually made the the box score. Remember the box score always used to have the attendance in it? Well, the attendance for the game, on there was – my memory is it was like Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday were the three games. <laughs> and there was nobody there. They played in the afternoon. So the attendance on, on Monday was like 125. They actually put that in the box score. And then the next day it was 124. So I said on the air, I said, Steve, what happened to the other guy? You know, I mean, it was just, it was just, I'm going, whoa. And, and that team ended up winning one, one big 10 game against Northwestern. Are you telling me that Penn State basketball throng that travels so well was not around there? No, they didn't make the, it, it, it was interesting. That Saturday was the game at Indiana where they had the goal line stand. And Steve and Jeff Tarman drove up to Milwaukee after that, and that kind of turned the program back in the right direction. The goal line stand against Jerry DiNardo's Hoosiers. Right, running up the middle four straight times is my memory. <laughs> With the offensive coordinator who was Steve Adazio, former oh. Temple head coach. He was calling those plays? Indeed, running the stack eye, which was three backs in a row behind the quarterback, the one that he's <laughs> – it, it, with with seven linemen, it was it was like a perfect team yeah. like this. But yeah, yeah Ed, Ed did not have a lot of talent. He did not inherit a lot of talent. You know, slowly over time, they obviously got better. Taylor Battle came a few years ago. They won the NIT. A few years later, they won the NIT. It got better, but yeah, those first few years, I remember they played at Illinois. With Illinois had that great team that played for the national title with uh, Darren Williams, Lutherhead, and all those guys. And I remember at, at halftime. I mean, the game was over. They were down by a million. And I remember talking to Ed after the game, and he was very good friends with uh, with Bruce, the, the, the coach at, at Illinois. And I said, do, 
do you ever envision a moment where you could have a team like this? And he said, yeah, that's what we're trying to get to. And yeah, just, he beat them the next year. I know they beat him out of Illinois. Yep. yep. Absolutely. Dick, Dick, how did, how did the, uh, how did the uh, radio job come about? How, how did you get to become an analyst and how challenging was that to do it? Cause they were playing, they were playing a couple times a week and you still had a lot of other stuff to do. And you had to get up to state college. I mean, that's a drive just for the home games. Indeed. Yeah. I don't, I don't have, the only home games I get are when they play at the Palestra or at Rutgers. Uh, so, but yes, <laughs> you're, 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 you are right, Bob. So what happened was, I was still covering the football team in 04 and I went up for a game and I said, let me go talk to their new coach. Maybe it was 2003. Let me go talk to the new basketball coach. You know, why, why doesn't this work? Why can't this work? So I sat down with Ed DeCellis and we had a nice conversation and I, I'm sure I ended up writing a story for the paper about it. And sometime not long after that, I don't think it was Ed, maybe it was Ed, but somebody called me, hey, would you be possibly interested in this? I said, well, you know, I'll, I'll talk to you about it. I wasn't going to be able to do it that year. That was the year of the great St. Joe's team, the 0304 team. That was Ed's first year. I mean, that, that was what I did. I, w- I was there for all of that. Um, but then the next year, maybe a month or so before the season, I believe, I think it was Guido who called me, says, do you want to do this? I said, you know, I always kind of wanted to do this. And I'm thinking, you know, why not? Let's let's see what it's like. Let's give it a shot. I knew Steve a little bit. Steve obviously has become a great friend. And, and Jeff Tarman, who was there with us for years, a great friend as well. And I just found it interesting because after the first couple of games, I said to Steve, I said, well, what happens now? Like when the game is over? He says, well, you leave. I said, what do you mean you leave? I'm supposed <laughs> to be on my laptop and start writing now. So from that standpoint, it was kind of all I'd learned about basketball and radio and TV, which I'd done a lot of in different mediums. Um, and then it's just like understanding how to get what you want to say in, in a quick amount of time. And basketball is better than some other sports because they're, you got foul shots, you got the ball coming up the court, you have time to say stuff. But yeah, that's kind of how it happened. I didn't know that it would go on this long, but it's really been fun. I mean, just to get to know the people and obviously working with Steve, is, it just he's one of the best. And he knows all the stuff I don't know. Like he knows the 11th guy on the other roster. I'm more looking for nuggets for people. And I'm trying to say, look, here's what I think is going to happen next. I'm very much not the guy who said, hey, that guy just scored a layup. Well, we already know that, right? So what do you think is going to happen? Why is this happening? I'm a kind of a what's next and why guy. And it, just being around different coaches and different ways they coach and, and being in the Big Ten to see the whole Big Ten thing. I'd never, I'd never been to those gyms. Uh, and just to see people like – Tom Izzo and, and Bo Ryan and guys, I mean, just some of the best at their craft. Uh, it's, it's, been, it's been a lot of fun doing it. You remember the time we were in the, the bar and told Bo, Bo Ryan that we called his team the Luftwaffe? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I can't remember anything about that, Dave. Uh, yeah, Bo, Bo, we used to kid Bo all the time about his team because they played a certain way. And, I mean, they just knocked out people with screens. What was it? Football on hardwood. I mean, it was just, it was crazy the way they played. But it was also a lot of six, seven, burr cut, blonde white guys named Krabenhoft. <laughs> Who's still there and got in an altercation with Juwan Howard this year. I said, I wasn't surprised. I, I saw him the summer. Remember the famous 36 33 game in the Big Ten tournament in the quarters at Indianapolis? So I see him that summer and I go, Bo, what was that? And he says, so it's Penn State's fault. I said, no, it was your fault. 
You're you're the one. Yeah, that was they had played a, they had to play a game against Illinois a few years earlier that they won thirty eight to thirty three. And Illinois, by the way, did not take a free throw in the game, which is the only game I've ever seen that in my life. And it was a home game for Illinois. I said to Steve after the game, as game was over, I said, when does the second half start? You know, Bo might have been right because you didn't even see the worst one out of all that trio. They beat Tennessee 43-41 in overtime the year before you started, or two was, years before it, you started. It was hard to watch, but it was very effective. And, of course, Bo got his team to two national title games. That game ended 33-33 and regulation on a clanged dunk by Calvin Booth at the buzzer. Dave, do you remember what we did the night after the night Penn State beat Wisconsin and Indianapolis? We ended up at a bar right down the street on the way back to the hotel. Jeff mm-hmm. Tarman was there. You were there. Steve was there. We're watching an NBA game between Orlando and Golden State. They made more threes in that game than these teams scored points. <laughs> it was just wild. And Taylor Battle, that was the night Taylor set the school scoring record. He had a game high nine. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe it is Penn State. Maybe they're the problem. And you was maybe what got you to basketball was the six four game against Iowa uh, <laughs> because you were there, right? I was definitely there for that. When in fact the next morning. <laughs> I'll never forget this. I called the football office and got Tom Bradley on the phone. I said, Tom, meet me at the waffle shop downtown. You need an intervention. Because <laughs> <laughs> as you remember, and Dave had the greatest line of that season, and I've repeated this many times. He wrote in the paper, he said, this, this defense is the most unrewarded since the Alamo. And it was so true. I mean, that was a truly great defensive team that never allowed more than 21 points the whole season and finished four and nine or whatever it was. It was was crazy. But yeah, I did did have breakfast with Tom. I'm going, are you aware that was the score of the first football game ever played between Rutgers and Princeton? (laughs) 135 years before. Exactly. I think Michael Bradley said that it set the game back 135 years, which was a pretty good lead, too. Yeah, and and look, they were taking safeties because they were so sure Penn State couldn't score. Right. It was crazy. To make it a two-point game of taking a safety with seven minutes to go. I, my end of my column, I remember that. I didn't. I never remember the beginning, but I remember the end because I asked Michael Robinson, who's in charge of this offense? You remember he was kind of splitting time with, uh, with Zach Mills, and he looked down and he looked up and he goes, God. <laughs> <laughs> so my last line was, in that case, God help them. And to their credit, they came back the next year with a totally revamped offense with Michael Robinson and, and- – Almost went undefeated. Yeah, had a great year. Bob and I were were talking about the game after the one they blew to Michigan, pretty much because Joe kind of sphinctered up and and you know Mike Mike pretty much saved the day and and had the game won for them, and then they gave away the touchdown to Manningham at the very end with one second to go. But the next week they went into Illinois and beat Ron Zook like eighty five to three or something. three to ten. It was over. So yeah, yeah. They were just out of anger. You know, when a team is that good, they can just just get pissed off and beat the beat the bejesus out, they, of, out and, of. And they did. Yeah, that was that was a really good team, and that was fun. That was actually they get, they got rid of me the year before, and, they, and then they became good again. My man Bernard Fernandez took over the beat. That's right. The Daily That's right. This is the Blue White Breakdown.
Welcome to Curaleaf, a medical marijuana dispensary. Whether you're a long-time patient or you're just getting acquainted with this incredible plant, Curaleaf of Pennsylvania is honored to guide you along your medical marijuana journey. Have questions? Visit us at cureleaf.com or stop in to see us at any of our locations, including our new state college dispensary located at 1248 South Atherton Street. Let's talk medical marijuana and let our confidence become yours. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Bob, how, how about a few uh, uh, horse ra- at least one horse racing question? We can't have this guy without that. What I wanted to ask Dick was was this: so, what to you uh, is the more exciting environment to work in, like a triple crown race? whether it's the Derby or the Preakness or you're at Belmont and it's, it's somebody's going for the triple crown or a final four. Could you just compare the excitement level and what for you? Yeah. I know, I know you like a lot of different things, but what for you is, is the event you, you always look most forward to, to covering? For me, I mean, I was really fortunate in that I got to cover my two favorite sports and the seasons perfectly dovetailed like the uh, college basketball starts in November and would go till the final four in April and the Derby's a month later. So you get right through the triple crown all the way to the Breeders' Cup, which is usually the beginning of November. Which, and then we start again with college basketball. So from that standpoint, I could not have been any more fortunate. And to work at the place I did in the time I did where there was actually money to travel and you could do things. I mean, I did 31 Kentucky Derbies in a row, 25 final fours. My favorite event and my favorite sport are essentially the same thing. My favorite event is the Breeders' Cup in horse racing because it's the championship. It's the end of the year. It's not nearly as big as the Triple Crown races, and I get it because it's just for people that are really locked in. But it's all the best horses showing up in the same place at the same time. Um, so that's my favorite event. And people said, well, if you, you had to cover one sport, college basketball or horse racing, which fortunately I didn't have to worry about that, it would be horse racing for me just because of the stories uh, the stories are the greatest at horse racing. I mean, even this year's Kentucky Derby, I mean, come on, 80 to one horse isn't even supposed to be in the race. Rich strike, he gets in the day before it. That doesn't happen in any other sport. Uh, and, at, you know, who are these people? That was why I was so disappointing they didn't run in the Preakness because you wanted to get what's the next chapter here. We'll see them in the Belmont Stakes in a couple of weeks. But, uh, yeah, it just I, I love them both. But, yeah, the Breeders' Cup for me is, is absolutely my favorite. Best story you covered in horse racing, Dick? Smarty, Smarty Jones, Barbaro, what? Yeah, the best, the best continuing story. In fact, the best year I ever had in sports writing was 2004. So I covered the Great St. Joe's team all the way to all the way to the finish line at the Meadowlands, and literally a month later, I was at the Derby covering Smarty Jones. which also both of them had bad endings. Dave was there with me at the Meadowlands when John Lucas made the shot. And then of course, Birdstone catches Smarty Jones at the end of the Belmont. Let's let's back up. Let's back up to halftime of that game and the, and the elite eight. Speaking of what, 
What game are you watching? It's one of the few times. It, it, every once in a while, Dave is right. It's so disappointing when that happens. <laughs> it is disappointing. So my memory is St. Joe's was ahead maybe by seven at the half or so. And Dave says, you know, Oklahoma State, man, I've watched them. They're really good. Look out. I go, what game are you watching? <laughs> because I thought St. Joe's was faster. They dominated the half, but they really should have been up by 15. They couldn't make a That's shot. That's what I said. I said they should be up by 15, and that's never never a good one. Yeah, never a good omen. That is that is a fact. But, yeah, then I just went right into St. Joe's. And the toughest story ever, and Dave was involved in this uh, to an extent, too, is Barbaro. Yeah, I mean, he was the – Bob, that was the 2006 Kentucky Derby. It's by far the best Kentucky Derby winner I've ever seen live. This horse was awesome. It was just a – Really? I didn't know you felt that. Barbaro oh, yeah. won by six and a half lengths. If you keep watching after the race ends, he's 20 lengths in front by the first turn. It was just one of these awe-inspiring performances. I think you can make a case it's the greatest derby since Secretariat in 73. That's how good he was. And then, of course, he comes to Pimlico the first 200 yards of the race. His right rear leg gets shattered, and everybody knows the rest of the story. But, yeah, I covered that all the way from the middle of May until January when Dr. Richardson, who was such a great spokesman for the veterinary business and everything else – said, look, we always said we were going to do this if the horse was in pain, and that was the point where they had to euthanize him. But, yeah, just a an amazing and, – and for readers, I think that was probably the story, maybe two that I did my whole career. That story really caught readers because I think everybody can identify – everybody's had a pet at their home. They can all identify with it. I got incredible email on that one. And the other one I got incredible email was near the end. My last, uh, I, I got out of the Daily News December of 2017. I want to say February of 2015, I did a 25-year anniversary story on, on Hank Gathers. And the, his death for Loyola Marymount, of course, he played at Dobbins Tech with Bo Kimball. Doug Overton was on his team. I mean, just a, one of the greatest high school teams in Philadelphia history. But when I went back and did that retrospective 25 years later, the reaction was incredible. Uh, just, I, I think I may have gotten more emails on that story than any I ever did. That was reminiscent of the one you did on Jameer Nelson back in Chester. Those kinds of stories, people just, they, I mean, I love to write them. I remember when, when uh, Chuck Bousman, who was our sports editor at the time, he said, hey, look, I want you to do something on this. I'm thinking, boy, this is going to be hard. And you know where I, I visited? The first place I went was his grave site which is about a mile west of the Philadelphia airport. And then I just started going places where he'd been, his school, and where the funeral was. And the next thing you know, the story just builds and builds, and then you go ahead and write it. If you, if you show people that you give a damn, they don't really care who you are, and you're somebody to them anyway. You're part of Philadelphia journalism elite, and then you show up, then they're, they're going to they're gonna talk to somebody like you. It, I, I remember I had no idea what North Philadelphia was. It's 1990. It's March. And I just I've only been in in Pennsylvania for seven months. And I decide I'm going to drive over there on the off. It didn't happen on the off day in, in, during an 810 tournament. There, there wasn't any off day. It was one of the days of the tournament. You talking about the funeral day? No, I'm talking about the day he died. Gathers died. So, so he, d- he died on a Sunday night. Uh, it was at the A-10 tournament that was going on. I was actually in Albany with the great LaSalle team with Lionel Simmons. Uh, the only game they had lost all year was to Loyola Marymount at the Philadelphia Civic Center. And everybody knew Hank because they were – most of LaSalle's team was in the Philadelphia Public League and either played with him or against him. 
that was a brutal night because I got word. I mean, this is way before cell phones, right? So I got somebody called me from the office on the press phone in the Albany Civic Center and told me about it. So, I mean, I, I didn't write much about the game at that point. Uh, but, yeah, it was the semifinals of their conference tournament. Dick, uh, I, just to change gears real quick, I just wanted to ask you any thoughts on where horse racing's going with uh, some of the problems that it's had uh, and some of the trainers that have uh, famous trainers that are not really around as much anymore. And also, do you have any thoughts at all on the Belmont? Is it weird not having Bob Baffert around? Do you, is it? I mean, is it bad? Is it good? What, what do you think? Yeah, it, it is weird not having him around because he's the face of the sport. Now, I'm I'm probably in the minority on this, Bob, but I think that the powers that be in the sport made a dreadful mistake in deciding to uh, single out Bob Baffert as the bad guy in the sport. It would be like Adam Silver saying LeBron James is the bad guy. It's not something you should do. Basically, what he was accused of and ultimately technically found guilty of was horse racing's version of jaywalking. Uh, he was not doping horses. Uh, there was no performance enhancers involved, but they were irritated with him. And I get it that it happened after the Kentucky Derby, which is the biggest event in the sport. So they decided to, quote, make an example of him. I just think they, I just think they picked the wrong circumstance to do that. Are there bad people who have done bad things in this sport? Absolutely. One of them, a guy named George Navarro, is in jail right now, and he should be in jail. I mean, that he was doing that. It's on tape. It's obvious he's doing it. Those are the kind of people you want out of the game. But, yeah, I think they made a mistake uh, singling out Baffert, uh, Look, I mean, the guy's won two triple crowns. Now, unfortunately for him, he's become Lance Armstrong to the public. Everybody thinks he's a bad guy, and I'm not sure how he gets his reputation back. Before we leave, the the one sport you're still involved in in the public eye is Penn State basketball because you're on the radio with Steve all the time. You talk about a perfect pair. It is what you said. You complement each other just perfectly. You guys should be doing the radio on, in Kentucky basketball. I don't know what if you even know what your listenership is, but it's like this hidden gem of of a a telecast, a a broadcast that I don't know how many people hear, but it's it's wonderful. It's a perfect meshing of one guy saying what he has to say, the other guy getting out of the way. It, it's not like you're afraid of dead air. It's just that both guys have something to say and say it quickly, concisely, and tell you what you want to know, not what you already know. And that's that's a cool thing about it. Well, I, I appreciate that. Look, it's great work, Mr. Steve, because he's the ultimate pro. And we kind of look at it as having a conversation about the game. And we've been very lucky, obviously. Some of the players that we've gotten to know, I mean, Taylor Battle's a close friend, just really good people uh, through the years. That you know, Jamel Corley, I mean, just really up, up to the present day, I mean, from, from Ed and then, then Patrick Chambers and his staff and Micah and Adam Fisher and that group, they're just really good people. And I was fat last year. Mike was obviously dealt a difficult hand when he walked in there. I learned a lot of basketball last year. And I told him that on our last broadcast, I always enjoy learning more about the game and he has a unique perspective. And I think Penn state fans can, can look forward to, obviously he's got to get players and the the whole world has changed with the NIL and transfer portal and everything else, but feel confident you're in good hands with a guy who really understands how to coach basketball. They did it one way two years ago in 2020 with serious players. They had serious players and that team won eight games in a row. And 
if if they don't get some bad breaks with two guys late in the year, especially Myron Jones, who had uh, mononucleosis, and then I don't know what was wrong with Lamar Stevens. Uh, he might have been just hurt a little bit more than no, he let on. But they could have won that league with that team. Now, last year you had a, a guy who did so much with so little. Uh, and I think he's going to keep doing that moving forward because I wouldn't say that Purdue ever has – the most players they have talent uh, but that's the that's the the shop that he's learned in he's learned how to x and o for certain and he showed it last year yeah and look watch the boston celtics they'll be in the nba finals who was one of the top assistants that helped jason tatum and brown along the way micah shrewsbury he was right there with brad stevens and yeah I, obviously you need players you're right dave that 2020 team was incredibly talented uh i had told people before the season because they lost so many. Remember, they all lost all those close games the year before. I said, this is going to be a really, really good team. You told John you used to book, book tickets for the, the NCAA tournament, and then, of course, they couldn't have one. Yeah, no, it was just that, that that was the team that never really had a chance to show people how ultimately good they were. But, yeah, they were incredibly good and to win eight Big Ten games in a row. And you're right about last year, the team with all the transfers and everything. But the fact that they just kept getting better and better and they were so competitive – with not as much talent, obviously, as some of the other teams. They just were offensively challenged. But the coach, the staff, and the players, and especially a guy like John Harris, kept them in games that they probably shouldn't have been in. So we'll see what happens in the future. And John Harris, at the end of the season, said in Indianapolis, this team is going to win the Big Ten. I mean, that kind of shocked everybody. He meant it because he believed in Micah Shrewsbury. Yeah, no, I think, again, to, if, if you watched it and saw how much better that team got – from say Christmas time to like mid to late January, it was like a revelation because you were wondering if they were going to get to double digits and wins and how many Big Ten games they could they could win. But I think there was only three or four games all year they were not competitive in. Uh, and again, they had to play maybe not like the coach wants to play. I know he wants to play faster, but that's just about getting more talent in in the program. And, and we'll see. He didn't want to play like this anyway. We will be you, you the. the the foreseeable future, you're going to be doing this job. You're not giving up. Yeah, no, man. I, hey, man, I, I, I like being around the game, and it's it's a great way to be around the game. And to and look, I've known Adam Fisher since he was the the head manager when I first started. To see a guy like Adam now become the associate head coach, that's the cool thing about being around college sports. You just see players develop, coaches develop, and it's definitely. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how how they do in the second year. You're in this for the long haul, then. We we hope so because that's uh, that's how I want to see. I don't know about the horsies. <laughs> I'm in that for the long haul too. <laughs> I know that. Yeah, <laughs> Dick, you're fabulous as always, and really appreciate you. Some great stories, and we appreciate you having having you on. This has been the Blue White Breakdown, brought to you by Pen Live. 